Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. Hello, I'm Andrew, and this is episode 10. I'm delighted to say hello and welcome to my guest, Richard Gooding. Richard, could you let the listeners know what your connection to the motoring world is, please? Hi, Andrew. Um, I'm currently Features and Road Test Editor of Greenfleet Magazine. Um, I'm also uh, Editor of PoloDriver.com and a freelance motoring writer who has done some bits and bobbed for outlets such as Motoring Research and other titles like Volkswagen Driver and Audi Driver magazine. I've also written a book this year, and that's been published by Crowwood Press, and it's on the Porsche 914. So uh, busy is the um, is what you are. Yes, busy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? Your main job is um, Greenfleet. And what, yes. what exactly is it that you, if you could educate, just just imagine, and just imagine uh, that there is someone who has no idea what uh, Features Editor does, um, and for this role, I shall pretend to be that person who is completely clueless. Um, if you could explain to us what what is the typical thing you would do uh, during a day or week or for a publication? Um. Well, it's kind of a dual role, really, because the company I work for, um, we publish five other magazines and websites for public sector, in the public sector arena. So we do one magazine for people in government, local and central, one for education professionals, one for healthcare professionals, uh, one for people who work in counter-terror uh, in that industry. And we, they're all at various frequencies. So one might be bi-monthly, so every two months. One might be 10 times a year, which we class as monthly. And other ones might be quarterly. So most weeks there's a magazine going to press and Greenfleet is just one of those magazines. Mm-hmm. Um and on the other titles, I'm production editor. So that involves laying out the pages, making sure everything's ready for press, sourcing images, um, doing a bit of subbing as and when I need to. Um, but for Greenfleet, it involves that kind of thing as well, as well as writing road tests for the magazine, writing features. So I, the pre, the previous issue... I wrote, I think, two or three road tests or two road tests on one first drive. And then I also wrote the Paris Motor Show Review um, from the warmth of the office and news press, not actually (laughs) going to Paris, sadly. Um, And also a review of the commercial vehicle show in, in Germany. But again, that's all the skills I have. It was faster for me to write the report and lay it out at the same time because I can lay out, I can choose the photos that I'd like to use that would make the magazine look nice, mm-hmm. lay it, lay them out into a layout and also write the words around it or write to fit that particular layout. So it's nice to be able to do that. Um, because you can do the whole thing in one go. Yeah. Likewise, when I'm taking photos for the magazine for road tests or whatever, 
um, I'll invariably sometimes picture how how that picture might work in the layout. So I I may leave copy space at the top of the picture if I want text in there. Um, and it's like a jigsaw. I don't like to work on a layout unless I've got, apart from the text, the whole all the all the pieces that I need all together, and then then it's just a way of fitting them into into the puzzle and, and working out where they fit. So yeah, that's so Greenfleet goes invariably one week in four, um, and then the other three weeks in a month. It's one of the other t- titles, more or less. This week is a free week. We've not got any magazine going to press at all this week. Um, so. So that's hence we could talk. Hence we could talk. Yes, yes, <laughs> and hence why I was um, out on a launch yesterday. Um, because again, that can be when you're in that kind of role, time is quite short, and because it's a small team of about eight people, production and and the editorial, it can be quite hard to get out of the office for. A, if a launch is two days or or day and a half mm. to give that time over to do that. It sometimes depends on what the car is, what the powertrain might be or, and how important that might be to our audience, I suppose. Yeah. The, the relevance to your, to, to your audience is uh, yeah, because, key in your decision-making there. Yeah. We primarily focus on as the title would suggest low emission, uh, cars and vans and transport in general. Um, so yeah, it's definitely the end of the market. If we could take a, a bit of a step back, mm-hmm. and I want to um, investigate where you, when you first became interested in cars, uh, and with that interest, were you encouraged by anybody, or was this a, a sort of self-motivated thing? Um, well, like Johnny Edge. Um, a few weeks ago when you interviewed him. I can't pinpoint exactly when it was, um, but I know it was when I was very small. Um, My dad passed away when I wasn't quite four, and I know from people telling me that he was very much into foreign cars, things like uh, Citroen 2CVs, Beatles, I think there was Model T somewhere down the line as well. Um, so quite quite a mixture, and I guess that's predominantly where it came from. Um, certainly the Beatles thing, which I might come on to later on, um, and the Volkswagen thing. As people who would know me know that I'm very much a kind of Volkswagen obsessive I guess is one word <laughs> to describe it um, so I can remember always been surrounded by toy cars and stuff again a bit like what Johnny was saying before um, and mum certainly didn't discourage it um, in fact I remember her taking me to most of the Disney films when I was a kid at the cinema and certainly all the Herbie films at the cinema. Um, and I think as I got older, it was my 
granddad probably who certainly when I was learning to drive and things like that he had quite a role in helping me learn to drive and basic kind of maintenance things which I probably didn't pay much attention to because I'm rubbish at that kind of kind of thing anyway um so how old were you when you um took your test passed your test i was uh, 18 i started learning to drive when i was 17 Mm -hmm. in 1990 and um i passed my i passed on the second time i was gutted that i didn't pass on the first time because i've been looking forward to it for such a long time Mm. um learned to drive in a metro took my first test in the metro i think wow i I actually learned to drive with the same instructor who taught my mum and taught my nan although my nan was my nan was quite a bit older when she learned she was in her 40s so that's that's where that that thing correlates um and yeah took my second test when i was 18 and had to wait six months after the first one before i could take it again and took that in my first car. I didn't blame the Metro, I don't think, but um, I just thought it might have been easier because I'd been used to driving it up to that point. I remember driving up and down. My my grandparents used to keep... They then bought a new car, and they kept the old car for me for when I passed my test. It was kept in a garage away from the house, but not too far away from the house, across the road. I can remember driving it up and down the the service roads, I guess, in effect, of where the gar- the garages were. Mm. Um, so I was used to driving that car. So I took my my second test in that car and passed. But interestingly, I had the apparently it was quite rare back then. I'm not sure now to have the same examiner twice. All right. And I think I failed. Either failed on reverse around a corner or highway code on the first one and didn't do the other one right on the second one. But whether they balanced out or not, I don't know. But I passed on the second one. Um, so, yeah. So that was about 25 years ago, which is quite scary. We, we don't think about things like that. No. <laughs> So, um, so what was your first car? Was it the, was it the Metro? No, and uh, and you may recognise the theme coming on here. Um, my grandparents had then bought a 1990 brand new Ford Fiesta, popular, I think it was a popular plus. It was the first of the probably what I would call the Mark Three, mm. the kind of smooth nose. The, the biggest improvement over the facelift is Mark One, anyway. Um, that was launched that year, I think, or or in eighty nine. And they'd had the previous car, which was a nineteen seventy eight Volkswagen Polo N, which is the entry level one. I was going to say basic, but entry level one, although, although it was quite basic. Um, they'd had that since new, so they'd had that for twelve years. Was that a bread van one or a coupe? Um, no, it was the very. It, it it was the generation before that, so it okay. was the kind of kind of fastback shape, but it was just the hatchback then, rather than the the bread van and the coupe and whatever else they called it after that. Yes. Um, and they said, "Did I want it?" 
at the time I was into, I really, really wanted a Beetle. Really, really wanted a Beetle. I'd never driven one. Uh, that didn't happen until years later. Um, and I said, well, it's not a Beetle, but it's a Volkswagen. So, and they didn't want anything for it. So I said, yeah, okay then. <laughs> um, and that was probably responsible for the 25 years of stuff since, I guess. Um, In- extreme interest, I think, is possibly the yeah way to put it. Well, yeah, well, when I, I just call it an obsession, I think. <laughs> um, but I know I'm not... As, it's a perfume not, by Volkswagen. <laughs> I know I'm not as obsessive as other enthusiasts are because I know a few in Germany who are, well... Another probably a posters in the on the lounge, wheels on the shelves and all sorts. Well, now you're just sounding as though they're Andrew Brady. <laughs> <laughs> I've known friends like that too over here, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's contained obsession maybe rather than out and out. Let's have the whole house dedicated <laughs> to a certain car. Um, Change the door knocker to a Volkswagen. Yeah, but I don't think that would be allowed. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but no, that's that's probably what's been responsible for twenty five years of. But I I I loved it. It was having I sold it in ninety four, so I ran it for three years. It provided transport to our school in Norwich, which was about thirty miles away from where. I lived in Lowestoft. Um, it did that every day without complaint, and it was just fantastic. And if I'd have known now, fast forward 25 years later, how rare they would be mm. if it hadn't have been, you know, the floor was rotting and every MNC was would be failed. If, I, if I'd have known that then, I would have kept it, I would imagine now, uh, but that's the the whole if only would have could have should have isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So um, taking a step back from the car for a second though, um, in school did you do anything car related or um, your future career of uh, you, you say you went to design school? So yeah. did did motoring or vehicles come into that in any way or did that happen later? Later, um, I am a graphic designer by trade. That is, from memory, all I can remember that I wanted to do. I wanted to design record covers or magazines. So I fulfilled one of those things anyway. Um, <laughs> on a weekly basis. <laughs> on a weekly basis, yeah. Um, yeah, you don't get much time to finesse the layout sometimes, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so go, go away and think up a theme for this. No, make it happen now. <laughs> I always wanted to do that kind of thing. So I, I did graphics on a day release course from school, I think, towards the end of the last year of school. Then I went to college for two years in Lowestoft and did a BTEC and then went to Norwich for a further two years and did a higher national diploma. And, um, yeah, and then got a job at the local auto auto trader office in Norwich designing advertising frames, I think they used to call them. So you would design the advert that the pictures that the sales reps would take 
for the advert. Mm-hmm. And then they would be put in by the production department. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the first, the first proper job, if you don't include working in it, at Tesco and stuff in between leaving college and getting that first job, um, because I've been there all the way through the upper end of school from like 16, mm. doing that part-time in the evenings and stuff, earning some money. Um, that was the first proper job. I did have a car tinge to it, which I hadn't realised. Um well, we like to think that rear view is the uh, opportunity for self-discovery yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, <that's>... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to was... our couch. Have a sit down. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was quite fun, yeah. So that was that was in both arenas, I guess. It was cars to a certain extent, and also uh, publishing. So, hmm. so yeah, that laid the, found- the foundations, I suppose, to where I am now. So what did you move on to after uh, Auto Trader? Um, I then went to work for a, a friend of my mum's who was who had a business doing websites and things like that. It was it I wasn't there actually very long because I it was a very small business in like there were two or three people, it wasn't huge. Um and I did some very, very basic websites, which I'm sure now if you looked at them and they're probably not even stood up online, would be shockingly bad. Um Got to know some basic coding, but I'm sure I've probably forgotten some of it by now. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to remember where I went after that. That was only for six months, if if that. Oh, and I, I moved. That's right. I moved to Kent to work on a printing magazine um, and was there for two or three years in Tunbridge and then got a job working for the account, the association of chartered certified accountants in London, in Holborn, again, with magazines doing its student accountant titles. So for cat for accountancy students, which was quite interesting in the fact that it was, it had to be, it was quite a dry subject. Finance. I was going to say, how many pictures of calculators and <laughs> they, they were quite random pictures. They were quite lifestyley, and my my editor at the time was quite had a good eye for a style and things like that. So he would, you know, we we pick some quite random pictures of you know trendy young people and stuff, and to try and make it look a bit more interesting. Mm. And it was also interesting from the fact that because it was a global market thing. You couldn't have bare shoulders or you couldn't use drinks, alcohol oh, right, okay. and all those kind of things. So it is a bit sensitive to those kind of markets too. Um, but I was there for almost 10 years. Wow. Um, living in Ipswich and then living in Jumsford. Lived in London for the first part of it. Only for a year though, and then moved out again. Yeah, found it a bit too busy, um, and then commuted down from Suffolk and then from Essex every day. Mm. Um, and now left there in 2011. Was freelance for a bit until t- 2012. Bits and bobs here and there, design bits here and there, 
um, I did six months, not every week, but six months at Bauer in Peterborough um, doing design work and subbing. I think I'm quite unique in that respect that I can do both things because you, most people, you either get a sub or you get a designer and not both. Yeah. Um, so I worked on, on stuff like Practical Classics and Classic Car Weekly, Land Rover Owner International, Classic Cars. Mm-hmm. Um, on, you know, one day or one week I'd do subbing, one week I'd do design stuff. So that was that was really really nice six uh, six months or so, but the journey from Essex to Peterborough was a bit of a stretch. Um, although I did it in the summer, which was really actually quite nice. I didn't actually know what it would be like in the winter, mm-hmm. and this job came up where I'm currently working. Um, so I applied for it and got it. So. I think the last thing I subbed at Bauer was a, they all knew about the polo thing, I think, but the head of publishing back then, he's not there anymore, I don't think, gave me my last article to sub was a service guide for a polo 6N2, which is what I've got now for Car Mechanics magazine. So that was quite a fitting uh, last thing to do. Just print that out and put it in my back pocket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think he knew. I think it was done with a knowing wink, I think. I don't know. <laughs> um, but that was, I, I, of all the things I think I've done, the six months there was probably the most beneficial because I, I learned such a lot. I mean, I've been writing before then for a couple of people and I've been writing since my early 20s for some of the Volkswagen club magazines. Mm-hmm. That's where that thing kind of started. And then I was editor of the local Volkswagen Club magazine for a couple of years. Um, so I cut my writing teeth, I suppose, earlier than that. But I hadn't really made it pay in any way, really. Yeah, so so what you say you learned a lot. What, it, what, what do you mean? Do you, you had to learn um, how to uh, form an article that, typically go in a magazine or how yeah, I guess so. I think you've probably I would imagine from by the sounds of it you've got the layout sort of roughly worked out because you had that uh, excellent editor at um, student accounting weekly or whatever the magazine was that you were on hmm. um, it sounds like you learned a lot design wise from there in a, in a practical sense so hmm. so what helped you out um, or what do you think you benefited from from the six months? I think it was, I think, a the middle people because they were all really, really nice people, and they they give you time to do stuff and tell you what they wanted. You know, it was very clear what what was needed of you and stuff like that. And it was that helps a lot. I think if you got some direction, mm-hmm. a lot of the if you if I was subbing, a lot of the layouts were already done. It was just looking at the text reading it, you know, making amendments where you had to make amendments. If you could think of it as a headline or writing a stand first, you know, all, all the things like that, or the intro bits to an article. Um, and I just found those, those kind, of, kind of these really beneficial because no one had really, I don't think, pointed in any direction before. Because um, you'd not had formal training. 
I guess, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm. So you were getting on the job training, really, is what you were. Yeah, again, you were getting a crash right. course in. No pun intended, but you were getting a crash course uh, in uh, what it is to create an article to go to print. Yeah, I'd like to think I've got a fairly good grasp of English anyway. Mm. But again, like Johnny said, I'm not a trained journalist. So I I never call myself a journalist. I always call myself a, a motoring writer if I refer to that particular branch of what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I never went to journal, journalism college or did journalism courses. So it's all been self-taught and and taught like it was there maybe by by other people. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Hopefully it's, well, it must be all right if the book was published. <laughs> that's all. Uh, well, on, that, was... on that subject, how long did it take you to... Oh, right, now I'm going to take a couple of steps back here because I've got a few questions on this. Okay. Um, when did the idea of writing about the Porsche come to you? Well, I've always wanted to do a book years ago when I was involved in one of the polo clubs my friend and I back then had both had the same idea about doing one but we never did and so that that was the initial one that I, that I pitched knowing full well that it probably wouldn't be a goer because it's not maybe not here maybe elsewhere it is it's not the car that would feel so many pages well it's not the kind of card that would make a book like that sell I think is is what I'm saying um, so I pitched that first strangely enough after talking to before he was at Parker's um, Keith Jones mm. um, when he was doing his book about 90s cars um, he gave me his editor's details and I emailed her and said, here's who I am. Here's, here's some of what I've written. Here's the book I'd like to do. Or, you know, would you be interested in doing, in doing a book? And she, she got back to me and said, yeah, you know, we, we don't know if Perla would be a goer, but if you send us more, what other cars do you like? So I sent her a list of, there was 914 on it. There was Alpha 105 Series Coupe. There was... BMW 2002, the Fiesta of all things, because that was then coming up for its 40th birthday. Um, and I've always liked small cars, I guess. Um, I think there might have been a golf one in there because I'd love to throw, I'd love to find the early small bumper Mark 1 Golf GTI in a barn somewhere, you know, with a cover over it and you just bring <laughs> it back and it's all there in its pristine glory. It has to be small bumpers and small wheels though and small small rear lights. Um, <laughs> Not <too> picky. Yeah. <laughs> Find um, another one similar. Like, no, 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 no. It's got the wrong bumpers. Leave that to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all, all those kind of cars that I would ideally love in a, a dream garage I suppose so nothing really hugely expensive and hugely flashy and you know and it's more realistic cars I guess so I've never more, really Ferrari more not uh, I don't want to it's the phrasing here though it's, it's not saying uh, common cars or or dull cars because they're not they're, they're 
they're interesting in their own way, apart from the Fiesta. The, I don't see the fascination there myself, but that's that is the beauty of the motoring universe, though, because <laughs> it, we've all got such wide interests and there's such a wide variety of aspects that make us go, oh, I really like that. Or I yeah. don't like that yet. The friend of mine really does, and I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I'm just, uh, just pulling your leg there. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting to hear um, you mention cars that are more realistically attainable. Although the way prices are going on classic cars at yeah. the moment, it's <laughs> when that bubble bursts that the bang will be heard across the universe at the Roy it's going. Yeah. Um, see- Ferraris and things have never done anything really for me at all. Um, I, I like them, but the way I look at it is it's so unattainable for me. Hmm. I I don't... This is going to sound very harsh, but I don't waste any effort in spending time looking at them and pouring over details. No, and stuff no. like, because I, I'm never going to own that. If I see one, I can go, wow, that's fantastic that looks gorgeous you know etc you know the noise is brilliant wouldn't it be great to have a quick spin round in that but you know i i, I wouldn't i couldn't own one I'd, i wouldn't be able to afford to have it maintained let alone buy one so i'll think about something a bit more realistic yeah I'm, I've, I've always been more of a porsche man than a ferrari man if i'm honest and it's funny as soon as i hit 35 i think the classic car interest got almost stronger overnight it's weird. Um, I'm not sure why. Where uh, are your birthday cards of classic cars? <laughs> Subliminal messaging. And, you know, it's it's the same, I, I guess, with the early Volkswagen stuff now. You know, I've, I've always liked Beatles. I've got stacks and stacks of books and stuff. And I used to go to all the Volkswagen shows years ago. And, and now, because it's almost, well, been more than 40 years since the first watercooled cars happened that's taken more of a, a relevance to me now anyway mm. because they're almost as old as i am so and they kind of stuff i was saying i was saying this yesterday actually to someone else i think when you're younger there's certainly a lot of 80s stuff now i mean i work with those people who are in their mid-20s so i'm one of the oldest so there are things they say to me and i say to them that None of us know what the other one's talking about. Um, and Cultures are colliding. Well, yeah, and it's shocking to realise that some of the 80, well, a lot of 80 stuff, a few of them weren't even around for oh, because they weren't even born. And I think now, now I'm older, you have an appreciation of stuff that when you were a teenager, you didn't quite understand. Mm. And now you're older you appreciate it more, whether that's cars, TV programs, music, all those kind of things. Yeah. Because when you were a teenager, you glossed over it or you didn't really take much notice or didn't understand it. I think you're a a touch more self-obsessed as well as a teenager. (laughs) Well, yeah, that too. Or is that just me? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's, that's, that's how I pitched it to them. And Crowwood came back and said, well, you know, the Porsche might be goer. Here's a chapter plan for the book on the Allegro. If you do one very similar to this, if you take this as a guide, um, jot down certain points. They gave a, a couple of pointers or what might be 
might be suitable for chapters and stuff. Mm. I did that. I didn't have to send them a chapter sample because I'd sent um, a, few, a few examples of what I'd done before. Yeah. So that was one obstacle that was already done. Um, and then that was it. I had the contract. Um, signed the contract. I had three deadline extensions because I was doing around a full-time job. Um, so it meant a lot of evenings were given up, a lot of weekends for, and I mean, the whole process was two years from start to finish. Okay. And I think I could have done it much sooner had I not had a full-time job yeah. to also work it round. Um, but and, it was. And putting ever, that together, did you, um, were you able to use archives of photographs or, uh, I don't know, I suppose you contacted the, um, the British Porsche 914 club or whatever that is. Sorry, excuse my ignorance there. Um, and, and talk to owners and, or did you photograph much of the, the cars in the book? Or? It was a mix of all those things, really. It, it was, um, a lot of the history you can find online and in books. I've got a lot of books that are magazines and road tests and stuff that I bought specifically for research. Um, and a lot of it in, you can find online, although a lot of that is contradictory. You have to be careful. Although it was interesting that I'd found a special edition that wasn't, there weren't many made of that the, what I would call the Oracle 914 circles. And I think he knows he is. Um, even questioned because he'd never heard of it Ooh. and he actually did do some digging and it did, did actually exist so I was quite pleased with that um, quite a little fist pump there <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah it was contacting the uh, Porsche GB contacting Porsche in Germany the archives I was actually offered a trip to go to the archive and look through the stuff but I turned it down because at the time it would have meant more time off the day job and I would love to have done it but I don't know whether the book you know it's only a 16 pound 960 page book it's not it's not a massive tomb of stuff or tome of stuff that I don't know whether it warranted three or four days over there to do it Mm. You know what I mean? I feel like I'd maybe be a bit of an imposter, I guess. So a lot of it was done through, you know, photos were sourced from Porsche GB, they were sourced from the archive in Germany. They were very, very helpful once you knew what you wanted. Um, and I went to a lot of shows and photographed cars there. So a lot of the photos in the book, I think, are unique. They're not published anywhere else. Okay. There are the usual press photos that would be in other books or, or other places. But a lot of the photos in that book are, are unique. And there's an owner's section at the back that has owner interviews, which were mainly done over email. I met two or three of them. And again, some of the photos in there are what they've, they've passed over. Hmm. Um, so again, they wouldn't be anywhere else. And there's a section at the end on on diecast. There's two pages on diecast models and things like that. So, 
that again I've accumulated since. It's always always a good excuse to go and buy something. Um, and it's research, they, it's research. Yeah, and they and they were they were taken um, on on the dining room table in a big white photo box. Uh, that's lit from above, but actually looks really good when you see it in the in the book. Um, and the most I didn't do it for the money because it was never going to earn that much anyway. It was always going to be a niche thing. Mm. Uh, I mean, they there was talk of being very, very, very few cars over here anyway in the seventies. So I think most of them were sold in America, uh, which the book is heading to, I believe. Um, around about now I need to check actually if it's gone over there now but it will go over there and I think it, there it might do slightly better mm. but interviewing the owners and meeting the people and actually having a go in a couple of the cars which I hadn't driven before they were the best bits because the people were so nice one guy one owner I went over to his house in Leicestershire once one Saturday and he had folders of press photos, folders of press releases, folders of photos, magazine things, toys. He used to run a model shop. So we had loads of 914 toys and he was a Volkswagen fan as well, had been for years. And him and his wife... So when you left a week later... <laughs> yeah. Him and his wife gave up more or less the whole day. You know, made me sandwiches and, and we talked about the cars and, you know, did some photographs of his model cars and stuff and it was such a nice thing to go and do mm. and now I've now he's a kind of friend so meeting well, that, people that's, that's good I mean that's that's excellent I mean this, that's part of that's part of the whole thing behind Rearview is to is to I mean I know we know each other but it's to meet people that I talk to on social media or who I've been lucky enough to meet more in depth and find out more about them and their interests and yes it's connected with cars but I'm I'm interested in the people and, and the decisions they've made and why they've got there and it's and it, I think it's uh, you don't get that from reading the SMMT figures once a month although that is an enjoyable podcast that Alan and I do um, it's it's talk you know why do we why are we on social media or why do we go to these exhibitions or these um these shows in the summer that are in a field it's because we want to meet the cars and meet the people because the mm. people have got this genuine love of cars or vehicles and it's nice to sort of sample that and and, and understand where that comes from yeah i mean i i also learned so much about it i knew that i liked them before but that was purely based on how it looks. I know the 914 isn't everyone's cup of tea and up until now, because there's recently been a bit of a renaissance about it, it, it the book timing seems to be pretty much perfect. Um, in the fact that it was quite edgy and square and there was a Volkswagen link there as well because the lower powered ones were Volkswagen engines in the beginning. Mm. Um, so that it, it appealed to both interests, I suppose. And now I've learned so much more about them than I didn't know before, which again is fascinates me because I am a bit of a 
I guess, a geek, I suppose, to certain extents. Um, so now I know there were, you know, 10 or so different engines over a six-year period. And at one point, it was so hard to keep track of what engine was which and all those kind of things. I had to stop at one point because I was just getting so confused. Um, and again, you you know, I got the the guy, he's a 914 uh, secretary for the Porsche Club GB, and he he went through the technical part of the book for me and pointed out a few errors that that I either got confused by, especially when you relate to model years and years. They're they're two different things, um, and I'm glad that it was checked by him because he knows very few things about you know there there are very few things that he doesn't know. Yeah. So I'm glad that he checked it because if it would have gone out and he wouldn't have seen it, I'd have been horrified if it was wrong. Yeah. Because I do take pride in what I do, and I do to the point where I maybe deliberate too long about certain details because I want it to be accurate. Because um, if you're going to write a load of rubbish, then there's no point even doing it. Yeah, exactly. So, did you enjoy the writing process? I know, I know you you said that you enjoyed meeting the people and getting to know the vehicles themselves. But did you enjoy the writing? Yeah, yeah. Um, I tried to start it writing from the very beginning and writing the order of the book. Um, my other half has written a few books and knows that that doesn't always work. So. I started writing the uh, buyer's guide section first mm-hmm. because that would be one of the smaller sections anyway. And it wasn't quite so dependent on historical data and things like that. So that was what I started with. And once I started that off and got it going, it was much easier. So that got you the momentum. Yeah. And each stage is nice when you get the proofs back first and you have to go through them all and correct what needs to be corrected because there were a few anomalies which were very strange. I think they were a style thing rather than a rather than a technical word issue. Mm. Um and then when you get the first copy of the book and you think, oh actually wow, you know, I've I've actually done it. But it's funny, it's when the first five proof copies came and I looked at them and thought, wow, you know, it's kind of happened now. This is it. It's out. And that was, I think, on the 12th of April. And now you look back, and I've got a copy on the bookshelf. And apart from it being pinned on top of my Twitter profile at the moment, I kind of forget that I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> because because you do something, and then you move on to the next thing. Yeah. And you have to... It's not as though you're writing books all the time. No, and I think, as other people was, have said before in in your episodes you sometimes have to stop and just take stock of what you've done because you forget well it, it that must be particularly tricky um for anyone that works in um content publishing i mean you do both online and uh in print it must be mm. tricky because as you just said there you right i've got this episode or you know i've got this um this uh this week's magazine is done or this month's magazine is done right now we're going to look at next month although you're probably working on stuff for next month already whilst you were tidying mm. up i mean I, I presume that's how it happens um 
and if I'm wrong in that, please do do point that out. But I, I would imagine that there are certain things that happen for following months whilst you're in the process of pulling together the the one about to go to print. Um, from because you've yeah. got things like long term tests and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, which are which are normally written quite close to the deadline, but um, yeah, right, struggling the writing particularly in the office, can be tricky because of the other production-based job. It's invariably a Thursday, Friday, um, no, Friday, Monday, because Thursday is normally press day, so Friday, Monday is normally tidy up days or setting up for the next week. Mm-hmm. So I try and sneak in a, a bit of writing then. Um, so, yeah, it's, yeah, I think the amount of stuff, most people, I mean, I, I don't go on every launch, I go on very few launches um, and just writing the stuff up when you come back from that. And, you know, it can be, it can be tricky and it can take some time. I always try and do it now, no more than two weeks after the event, because, you know, the manufacturer would like some coverage and all those kind of things. So, and we'll invariably get it up online first and then pull it down for the magazine at a later date. Because at least there's something, there's been some coverage. Yeah. I mean, we get very few pages at work for road tests and those kind of things. We normally get six or so pages, which, depending on how you use them, can be, you know, two, two, two single page brief tests, a longer one, and then a long term one. But you can juggle, I mean, you can juggle how you, how you split them. But if I've got three or four cars backed up, which I have now, it's kind of it can be quite tricky to get them in quite early. Yeah, because we're so pushed for space, we can only get three or four cars at any one point in any one issue. So you have to be kind of selective on what you on what you put in. Mm. But yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, you do. It's only really at the end of the year and and things like that when you stop you know you look back at what you've achieved over the past year and think you know oh I've done this and done this and done this and I sometimes put up a little uh, collage of my cars that I've driven this year just partly for me so I can count how many I've done or because I as I've just said I don't go on main launches really I'm not a serial launch launchist <laughs> not the best word um so a lot of them we get in in the office instead. So it's nice to see what you've done in that year, how many have been, whether the count's gone up or gone down. Um, just, I guess, partly for a personal sense of satisfaction, but also as the title's growing, it's nice to get invited on more things and noticed a bit more. Yeah. And if people think the magazine is is better or getting better and improving then they're more likely to, you know, lend you stuff and, and whatever. So, but yeah, you do have to take, you know, and with the Polar website too, I have to stop and think about what I've done because if you just don't get time to do it every day. Well, it's so easy to just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. You know I mean, I think Alan and I have uh, discovered that because it's when we came up to our year anniversary uh, a couple of months ago. Then we sort of looked back and look at what we'd done over the years. Sort of, crikey, we've 
okay, there's the volume of content we've put out there, but there's the other experiences we've got along the way that yeah. we wouldn't have had, that we wouldn't have, places we wouldn't have gone to, vehicles we wouldn't have been allowed near, uh, people we wouldn't have met if it wasn't for, you know, what we did. Um, and it's, you sort of have to pinch yourself a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things I've done this year was, again, we were talking about this yesterday, was the fact that, you know, we did the M25 uh, loop with Hyundai. With that their, was the, the record yeah. um, driving, wasn't it? Yeah, the hydrogen fuel cell car, which they invited journalists and luminaries, I guess, like like uh, Gauss Jones mm. to help with the record, setting the record for the distance travelled on a, a tank of hydrogen and all that kind of stuff. And that was most people's idea of hell would be driving around the N25. Um, Did you spend the entire time, like like Alan, going, this is so normal, this is so normal? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was good, though, is I got held up on the way there, ironically, on the, on the M25. Um, my slot was for about seven, but I think we got out about half past eight in the end uh, from Heathrow. And it was completely uneventful, and nothing happened. Nothing exciting happened. You had your pro driver there sitting next to you who would keep you talking. I think to not let your concentration slip. Mm. So it was left-hand drive car. It was at night. Um, yeah, yeah, it was dark, but it was brilliant. It was such a fun thing to do. Um, because I don't know if I've ever driven a loop when when the M25 in one go before. Let alone left-hand. Let alone hydrogen. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and the fact you're doing it in a car that was quite unusual, but just felt very normal. Was uh, yeah, it was good fun, and then drove back about half past ten. I think I think it took about two and a quarter hours. Was that in a, a dirty, disgusting uh, internal combustion engine vehicle as well? That was. I had the I had the latest generation Prius online that ah, week. Ah, okay. So that was that was quite in so keeping. You, you were in full on uh, electrified mode. Yes. Yeah, that week it was. Yeah, but but no, I mean that's that's just we working for the mag. That's that's let me do stuff like that, which has been fantastic. Mm. Right, I want to take a. I want to go back to the cars. Yeah. So you you had the Polo that you've um, sold on because uh, you couldn't see into the future and you were fed up of no flooring. So what did no you flooring. move on to next? It was the it was the green the green of the period that was most prone to fading to the guy at the local. Volkswagen Garage told me because I was always in there buying uh, cans of paint. <laughs> so by the time it left, it was various shades of kind of pea green, I think. Um, yeah. Um, and was I was kind of old before my time because it was green. It had houndstooth seats in it. So I, I put brown seat covers on, brown steering wheel cover because it wasn't a, a lot that would go with green. <laughs> so it was probably like an old man's car by the time it went. When I was 21, but then I bought a 85 Polo C, which again was a basic one, one wing mirror. I think I had a sun visor this time on the passenger side, the other one didn't. No headrests. I think it had a boot cover. It was Gambia red, which was the kind of burgundy red. Mm. The Volkswagen used quite a lot in the 80s. 
with matching painted red wheels, which weren't standard, in the same colour. So it's burgundy Ooh. car, burgundy wheels. Ooh. Lovely, yeah. D- did you did you alter the wheels? <laughs> I think I put wheel trims on. And then I put Mark 1 Golf GCI stroke Schrocco wheel alloys on it from scrapyards and stuff. And I put the spoiler around the back window like the laser cars had. Another wing mirror, spotlights. I oh, know. Actually, I think it has spotlights already on bumper. Um, but they weren't official, and I think they burnt out the light switch one night driving home from my mum's. Um, and it was that was the first car that I kind of sported up, for want of best word. It had, you know, the Golf GTR wheels, and it. it had seat covers that were fairly sporty, I guess, rather than brown. Um, I had that for um, two or three years, I think. And then by some strange coincidence, I had seen this Polo QPS that had been driving around. See, there's a theme going on. I told you there would be. Um, I'm not spotting it yet. I'm not. <laughs> driving around my local, the town where I lived, and it was black. It had a very rare, still rare now, actually, Zender body kit on it, which was a front spoiler that went under the bumper. It d- didn't have side skirts, but it did have an under-rear bumper valance thing and a, I guess, a T-tray-type spoiler that attached to the C-pillars went under the back window mm. and then round to the other C-pillar with wolf, Re- wolf Race alloys on that were star-shaped, and it looked fantastic. And the guy must have known, I think because the address, mum's address was in the Volkswagen mags at the time because of the polo club I was involved in, which is the polo register, which is the first kind of club in the UK for that kind of thing. But we never used to do much with it. So it kind of wasn't a club as such. Um, He must have known where I lived, I think, and came up the house one day and said can I join the club and whatever and then we we got talking and we became friends and then when he bought a Mark 1 Golf GTI in 96 I bought the polo off him and it was my first proper proper enthusiast car I think because it had been lowered and it was just fantastic it was mechanically standard but it was the first car I'd experienced that had been lowered and I thought, wow, what difference it makes. It's fantastic. <laughs> and I really, really loved that car as well. And I sold that in 1999. So I had that for two or three years again. And then bought a 94 Polo Coupe GT, which was five years old at the time. Newest car I'd ever owned. Got a bank loan for it. It was completely standard, but it was the kind of last of the line before the third generation polo came out. So it had your darkened rear lights. It had uh, the lady who bought it had spent quite a lot originally on, on extras. So it had tinted glass, headlight washers, front fog lights. I do like picking up a car where someone spent all the money first. <laughs> yeah. I think the only thing that it didn't have was a split forward rear seat, the alloys and a sunroof but she ticked everything else. I mean, you get very few that had the winter pack on, which that did. Mm. He did what the jets. Um, 
And it felt, I thought it would feel quite the same as the Coupe S did because it was essentially the same car. It had been re-engineered in 1990, but it felt so different because it had a a fuel-injected engine and a 20 horsepower more. And it was, and it hadn't been lowered, but it, it just felt so much newer. Um, and that was, I think I bought that for about four and a half thousand, I think, in 99. I'd inter- interestingly seen it three years earlier at the local Volkswagen uh, garage, the official retailer, and it was up for a shocking amount of money, I think. And I'd actually taken photos of it because I was that anal about them. <laughs> And it was only when I got home that I, I thought, I've seen that car before. It was one for sale three years ago, and it was. I shall now go through my collection. Yeah, well, yeah. Just something like that. It's <laughs> before that now. But, yeah, I'd, I'd seen the exact same car, and I wanted it back then. And it turned up three years later. It's just weird. Mm. Um, had that for 13 years, as long as I've had any car, which... Must have been, I love that one as well. Uh, <laughs> maybe more than the other two, three. Um, and then I bought the car I have now, which is a 2001 Polo GTI, which you've seen. Um, five years ago, I bought that. So that's 15 years old now, but it was just coming up for 10 when I bought it. Um, and it's now done 60,000 no, 60, since I've had it. So... Uh, so yeah, you, you get to you get to drive lots of new new cars and everything. Yeah, do you still enjoy getting in your older yeah. Polo? Yeah, last last night was a case in point. Actually, came back from Madrid twice via Farnborough Airport, and I'm currently running. People may know I'm currently running a Leaf for three months for the for for Greenfleet. And or I'm 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 looking after the leaf for, for Greenfleet, and I'd run an Outlander PHEV before that for six months, but because of the charging and the amount of time it would have taken to, to stop and charge and everything else with the leaf on the way down to Farnborough, I didn't take it, and the traffic looked fairly horrendous too. I took the Polo instead, and coming home last night. I fully appreciate that it will never ever be a hot hatchback legend or it will never be as sharp as a Golf GTI. It will never, especially that vintage, it will never be the sharpest thing in the box to actually drive around a, you know, around the Evo Triangle somewhere. Yeah. But it does most stuff so well and it's quite quick and it's quite comfortable and it's quite, relax on a motorway but if you put your foot down it'll yeah it'll take off again even in fifth Mm. and it's just so nice to have a small car because that's that's always impressive too is that a small car i know they've moved on so much in in the last 40 years or so can do all those things and be quite fun as well And and it still feels well made it's still, you know, doors still feel heavy. Uh, I can get 40 plus MPG out of it. They're getting rarer now. They only imported 3,000, so, and most of them are being broken these days, so there are very few around. Um, 
it doesn't it's not worth a lot now and i only bought it for 2500 and it must only be worth maybe a thousand now um but it just does everything most things so well you know on a motorway i can leave like yesterday i left farnborough it was getting dark i'm still fascinated by the blue glow of the instruments and stuff which is really silly <laughs> but it but it because it's such a feeling of you know, that, that premium quality kind of thing that you wouldn't have got in a small car back then. Yeah. Um, it just feels quite relaxing. And I, you know, I can put two sets from hell on the on my iPod and just blast down the motorway, and it's just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, I don't really want anything else, but I do drive that in a different way to how I would drive the Leaf. Because you have to. Yeah. Um, I'm more relaxed, I guess, when I drive the Leaf. I tend to want to get two places a little bit faster if I have the Polo, I guess. Mm. So, but yeah, so that's that's why I've kept that one for at least five years. Um, not quite sure when I'll get rid of it, but I think I think it must have had most things done to it by now. So all the, all the things that are failing, I think, are probably first time failing. So. That's that's interesting because I, when I I did, I've been lucky enough to be loaned uh, a few cars and, and I've gone on a couple of launches now and um, I still smile when I get back inside my Saab. Mm. Um, I, I I thoroughly enjoy the cars I've been in and seeing the, the technology that's available and all the stuff, but I I, I sit back in my two thousand and one. Saab 93 that has plenty of flaws and I just smile because uh, it, it makes me happy. That car makes me happy and it, I was interested yeah. to hear someone who's driven a lot more uh, and been exposed to a lot more modern cars whether you have a sense of regret when you step back in or whether you... No, I think I think some of it is is what you just said actually because compared to the cars I've had before this one feels so much more modern because it has things like electric windows, ABS, Xenon headlamps, which back in 2001 were, I think it was the only small car to have them. Um, electric windows, power steering, which all the previous cars I'd had didn't have. Yeah. So by today's standards, compared to what I'm used to, not most other people, it feels modern. Um, I mean, yeah, now it feels a bit older than it did when I first got it, but the gap between what I did have and what I have now and new cars isn't quite so wide. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And any any Volkswagen that has BBS wheels must, you know <laughs> they just look right. So um that's an unwritten rule I think. Uh, right, so I, I want what I want to ask you now is mm-hmm. um you're currently working at Greenfleet yep. and um, doing the editings yep. and writings and testings and stuff. Layoutings. Um, yes, the layoutings. <laughs> Where do you see? Do you? And you've and you've got um, your side projects on the go. Yeah. In an ideal world, and if, if dreams could come true, where would you see yourself in five years? What would oh, you see yourself doing? That's, that's a proper job interview type question, isn't it? Yes. Um, Do tell me about what are, what are some of your... 
I do really, really enjoy the writing. So I think after years of doing design and things like that, you know, I'm pleased that I can still do it. And I'm pleased that I can combine the talents that I do have. You know, I've got a, a bit of an eye for detail and an eye for design, I would hope, and what looks good where. And it's nice to be able to combine all those things into one thing. So, but I don't know, I, I've done more writing in the last few years, so I do enjoy that. That's a new skill that I found, I guess. Um, so I'd like to expand on that somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but where or how, I, I don't know. I know, I have sort of sprung not, that on you. I'm not, I'm not saying you yeah, spend no, hours every night look, d- thinking look, about this. <laughs> too far ahead. Um, there are a few things that I need to, you know, there are a few projects that I'd like to, to redo. I need to redo the Polar website slightly because that's been, that's been up for six years now with very little change. Um, and now the WRC program has stopped, which is a real shame for, from my point of view anyway. Um, it means that because I'm not writing reports on that, that might give me time to put some more content on there. Kind of not in a similar vein to what Gavin does with Petrol Blog, but it was always done as a site that wasn't supposed to be just news, but I like an enthusiast site as well. But okay. it's primarily been news the last few years because there's been so much going on. Um, and they, you know, if there's going to be a new car launched next year, then that will take precedent. But yeah, so it's, I'd like to do stuff with that. I'd like to get my own website back up and running, which I've got the domain name for, but I don't really promote it much anymore now. And it's nice to that, that I've, what I've been able to do is the stuff that I've been doing outside of Greenfleet has been totally different. Like for motoring research, I've done a few of their, or it's uh, Retro Road Testo, a couple of the cars that I drove on the Great Escapes Day with Graham in March have gone up on there. Um, and I've written one on the Volkswagen Classic Polo that I, that I drove a couple of years ago. 914 has been up on there as well. So it, it doesn't clash with what I do day to day because that's the classic side rather than the green side. Um, so but obviously the green side I know a fair bit more about now. Um, and it's nice to have a hand in quite a few pies, I suppose. Um, but try not to be too greedy about it either, because I don't, I don't promote what I do enough, probably, because I get conscious about it. You mean you're being British? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not that much of an outgoing personality to do that all the time. So, yeah, when I post things about the Porsche book on a Thursday or something, Quentin and Verbi, Throwback Thursday, or whatever it's called. I do it, but I know I'm doing it, and I feel a bit self-conscious about it. But I think, well, other people do a lot more than that. So you're not you're not going to pursue a career in marketing and PR? (laughs) Probably not. Probably not my strongest point. No, I do need to ramp that up a little bit. Because so, will you write another book? Now you've got all this free time. In theory, yes. I did say that I would think about it, but not necessarily if I had a full-time job. Um, 
or if it was a smaller book like the Porsche one, because although that still took up a lot of time. I think if I wasn't doing a full-time job anywhere, whether it be Greenfleet or somewhere else, then I, I might consider it. Because it was good to do, and I think it would take less time. Because you aren't been through the process once now. Hmm? You you know what it is what it involves from yeah. a, from a process point of view and effort and areas that you need to concentrate on. So that that from doing it the second time, it, um, one would hope that it would be uh, easier. Is probably not the right word, but um, energy could be directed in the right areas. Yeah, you aren't cramming it around everything else. Mm. So, you know, and trying to have a life as well, which is... <laughs> we don't think you all say sometimes. We don't have lives on, you know. <laughs> we always, you know, how how you and everyone else does it with children, I just have no idea. Oh, I, I just leave them to run feral. <laughs> that, that's that's my solution. You know, I'm going for parent of the year. Um, and, you know, as, as long as they're still alive at the end of the day and I haven't had to go in A&E with them, I take that as a win. But... <laughs> Because I, I, I quite often say that I don't get time to do all I want to now or read all I want to read. or So if I was trying to do it with children too, it would just be a nightmare. No, well, that's the thing. I, mean, this, maybe I, want I, think, I think that's what you've, you've uh, sort of said during, the, during this chat is that there is always something else that we want to be doing. There's always another th- thread or knot you want to unpick and really understand or get under the skin of um there just yeah. isn't enough time for it all so you have to you have to you know, pick your battles as it were or your priorities and you, you target it that way i mean yeah it just might be something i'm not really doing i had to delete layers of favorites on twitter recently because you know and, I, and i'm talking thousands because i would just never get to the bottom of them mm. and you almost feel like you're missing out if you don't read them because you want to read them um, there's another one coming along in 30 seconds, so don't worry. Yeah, I know, exactly. Um, so I just called equity, you know, um, whatever the phrase is. And just in bankruptcy or something? Yes, that was it. Yes, that was more or less exactly what it was. And just deleted the whole lot. Um, I've got a few back on there now, but I'm trying to not do as many as I did before. Um, <laughs> but maybe I just want to do or retake everything in too much. I well, know. I think because there's so much available, mm. that uh, we do feel that we should be looking at it, that yeah. we should be reading it, and you just realise you can't. You just you just can't. No, it's impossible. Yeah. Right, I want to move us on to the quickfire questions that um, close out the show. So this is the point where, and I say this every show more to myself than anyone else, I will ask you the question, and then you will answer the question, and. The idea is I do not comment on the answer to the question. Okay. And we move on to the next one. So um, fingers crossed, let's see if I can do better this time. (laughs) It's been failing miserably lately. (laughs) So I will start off with the the first question, which is what currently excites you about the motoring world? I think purely from a work kind of point of view is the way the electric car technology is going. Um, I mean, the Leaf has improved recently. The There was the Hyundai Ionic, which has quite a lot of range now. The new Zoe, I think, will be... I think it will be quite a game-changer if, if it does what it says, which is around... I mean, Renault, quote, 250 miles on a single charge, but in the real world, that's probably going to answer about 180. But even so, 
that would make my journey to my folks in Suffolk, which is about 90 miles, almost, if not doable, without charging. Um, and I think that would be fantastic. And it's just even how also the technology has now been used in, in motorsport. You've got Formula E. There's been talk of electric rallycross because that would suit the the short bursts of power that you know electric cars give you. Mm. Um, and especially now, as Volkswagen's pulled out of the World Race Championship, there are polos in. That's part, partly a personal interest too, I guess. There's there's polos in in the in the world's rallycross series, so there might be some crossover there. So yeah, I think it's all that kind of techie side of EVs and hybrids and stuff. Okay, so what worries you about the motoring world? Um, technology again, and I think like you, it's the kind of aut- autonomous stuff um, because A, the safety aspect, B, I still enjoy driving. Um, there are still pockets of fun to be had if you search for them or or whatever, and I wouldn't want to be autonomously driven all the time. But it sounds like it's going to increasingly happen. It might be some years away yet. But, yeah, that kind of thing, I think. I still enjoy driving too much to let that happen, I think. Okay. Um, What has been your favourite car to drive and why was that? I think this year, certainly, it was the both the Audi Quattro and the Fiat 500 of Great Escapes when we, I mean, you were there on that day. Um, they were the two opposites of probably what you could imagine, but it each was fun in their own way. I mean, the Fiat was just hilarious um, because it was so small and so not very powerful. <laughs> but uh, I was, I got paired up with Niall from Take to the Road and he actually filmed it. And the amount of times we laughed in that car was just fantastic. There were so many, even just taken off from the car park. Um, so no great supercars or no well I've not really driven in supercars no great supercars or anything like that but again all the more modest stuff and last year was certainly the 914 because I'd never driven one and the fact that someone had trusted me you know with them sitting next to me on the open road driving one no pressure yeah and I would have felt a bit a bit of a fraud if I hadn't driven one as I just read a book about it yeah so, okay. Well, what's your least favourite car that you've driven, and why was that? Again, Great Escapes. You were there. You also drove it, I think. Um, was the Cobra uh, replica because that was horrendous. <laughs> because I'm not very, I'm not very tall. I haven't got very long legs. Um, so I only just reached the pedals with the seat as far forward as it would go. And because of we got lost using the road book, um, I don't think it was entirely our fault. But anyway, um, so we had to go. I think you've actually had a knock-on effect of us being late. But driving the Cobra back through Kidderminster in rush hour traffic with a clutch that was quite severe... Um, and the massive engine was just horrendous. 
Yeah, I let Alan go first in that one, so he found out all the foibles, so when I drove it, it was all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that it wasn't fun, but I wouldn't... Uh, I, I just found it quite stressful. And I'm delighted I had the experience of driving that. Yeah. I can say I've done it, and I, but- I, I got the visceral experience that it is. I mean, you, you're getting all the senses are being bombarded. Um, but I wouldn't want it as a daily driver, and that's not a criticism of the car, but it's no. great escapes or anything. That's just that's, yeah. that's a, a, a short burst experience type car. Yeah, no, I can't, so I'd rush to do it again. Um, to be honest, I just, I think it was maybe the situation, the timing. Yeah, through town would have been hard. And that day was blooming cold. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was the, the least favourite, I think. Okay, so it, well, now I've failed in not commenting. Uh, well, I that was probably my fault. <laughs> no, no, I shall, I shall try to <laughs> try to rein it in now. So um, what car would you like to own next? Um, I didn't really question this until this morning, um, until I knew I was talking to you. Earlier on in the year, I toyed with, this, this is going to sound so boring and so predictable, um, a new doesn't have GI. V and W in the maker's yeah, name, does it? Yeah, uh, he starts with PNs and O. Um, I, I toyed with the idea of getting a new Polo GCI a while ago because there were some quite good finance deals on. Um, or even a, a one-litre turbo because I had one of those in a few months ago and everyday performance, that would have been fine for the kind of journeys that I do and yet have better fuel economy. Or I even thought about a older first gen blue motion which was about eight years ago and was a diesel because again the journeys that i do are probably you know they they're not exciting they're not gonna push the boundary of anything that i would have so to me that would probably be fine it's it might be a bit boring to other people well it would be boring to other people um it's kind of and i kind of like my own car i guess I hadn't really thought about replacing it. At the moment, it's fine. It's not costing me too much to run it. It's, as Graham was saying, as Graham Eason from Great Escapes was saying on your last episode, I think, it's kind of bangonomics kind of thing. I like the fact that I own it. There's no finance on it. It's all mine. I can sell it if I want to. And even though I worry about it when I see it, to park it around the corner if there's, a, if there's too many test cars here. Or if the leaf needs charging, and I I still panic about it if I can't see it about someone hitting it, even though it's not worth very much. And I think that's the fact it's mine, and it's not got any finance on it. It's not got you know it's not owned by a leasing company or anything like that. So, mm. and to me, it kind of it always it I see it relating to my personality and the fact that it looks a bit sporty, but it doesn't really. It's not really as sporty as it could be, and that's kind of how maybe a little bit boring. It's kind of it's kind of what I feel about myself sometimes. I think I like the idea of going to the gym and being sporty and you know everything else, but the reality is I sometimes don't want to go. I'd rather <laughs> sit indoors. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, so I don't know. In a, really, in answer to your question. I've not really thought about it. It would probably involve something with a Volkswagen badge in it somewhere, though. Okay. Um, 
or or a nine one four badge maybe, which is terribly, terribly predictable. Um but I'm not you know, I'm not I'd like to think I'm quite modest and don't want anything too flash. So I don't like to draw attention to myself, I think, is what I is what I think what I'm getting at. Okay. <laughs> See if you come on this podcast. Um yeah. so yeah, no, that's true. I've tricked I've tricked you into it. Um yeah. what's your favourite road to drive on? Um a few years ago we went to Glencoe um for a family holiday and we drove up there and it was scenery was stunning. It was fantastic. So no real particular road in particular, but the roads up there, Glencoe and the Highlands, were just unbelievable. Um, primarily because they see me, obviously, but I mean the roads. the The roads were good. They weren't roads like the roads in North Wales or something. They're quite twisty and stuff, but the the scenery was just fantastic. But locally, there's a there's a road from the office. That goes from Watham Abbey to Harlow, and it's not a B road or an A road. It's I think it well, it must be somewhere, but I did look on Google Maps earlier on, and I couldn't see a road name. It's just it's just named roads that are named rather rather than a, a classified road. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes between between two towns, so it must be quite major. But it's it's a uh, if it's not full of traffic, it's quite twisty and got a few dips and crests and things. And if I've got a test car and it's a particularly nice one to drive or a fun one to drive, I'll take it that route home at least one one night in the week. I've got it. And it goes through places like there's a brilliantly named place called Bumble's Green. <laughs> it just sounds so maypole on the village green and all, all those kind of things. But it's when it's not full of traffic and it's full of traffic far too often, it's brilliant. So that would be the local road, I think. Excellent. What is the most pointless optional extra that you've had the misfortune to experience? Um, this goes back a long way, and I, I'm sure it wasn't an optional extra as such, but my nan on my dad's side had a 1976 P-Reg blue robin reliant i've no idea why but anyway <laughs> um and that had one of those stick-on compasses <laughs> that, <laughs> that was the ball that moves inside the little yeah clear ball. the one <laughs> and i that's just a memory that just stuck with me for years and i can remember the ride in that car being particularly bad and I think we must have been near the beach at one point because that's the town I live in, you know, is a seaside town. And I think we were going over some rough ground and the thing was bouncing around like anything. So the compass was going bananas. Um, but, so probably that. I mean, on a, on a test car, we had a Jaguar XE in and that had vented, again, like Graham was saying, had vented seats. And my mum, I think we put them on for her and she was horrified. I think that <laughs> it was blowing cold air out of the seat. Where cold uh, air should not be blown. <laughs> yeah, heated is one thing, but cold air, maybe not. Or, although we had the car in January, February time, so it was cold anyway. So <laughs> I'm sure in the summer it might be different. 
so yeah i think i think a 70s globe compass and a 2010s vented seats <laughs> okay uh who do you think i should talk to after you well my first thought was one man coffee machine uh richard alcock <laughs> um because he seems to be everywhere mr featherfoot Yes, you know, one or one or two places at once, I think. Or, you know, also Tim Pitt from Medium Research. Um, or also um, Jonathan Musk, who is the founder, editor, publisher, whatever, of uh, Autovolt magazine, because he's doing great things for EVs and hybrids. Okay. So uh, those three would be my three to tip, I think. Right, well, uh, soon the badgering will be released and uh, (laughs) I will get on with that. But thank you very much for that. So um, just to round this out now, uh, what are the best ways uh, for people to find out more about what you do uh, or get in touch or anything like that? I think primarily like most other people, it's probably Twitter is easier because I can then email or whatever from there. Um, And my professional i guess account is at rich gooding com okay um and yeah i can i can get in touch with them that way or they can get in touch with me that way or you know all those kind of things uh, i'll also put a link in the show notes to your book thank you um and um i'd just like to uh thank you very much for coming on i've, I've had a i've had a great chat here um i've learnt, um that you are uh, an obsessive. Yeah. I've, I've, <laughs> uh, I've learned that uh, how to write a book now. Um, I'm sure uh, that, vary, that might vary from person to person, but yeah, I don't know. That's just my experience of what happens. And, I, and I've learned that you do all the things when it comes to print and uh, when it comes to, to putting out a magazine. So uh, that that has been fascinating, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. well thanks for having me on. I, I always enjoy it. I, I've I've been lucky to be on before with the EV and hybrid acronyms episode we did, and and as a guest one one week as well. So it's always always fun. No, thank you very much. Um, so yeah, so thanks for that, uh, Richard, and uh, I'll I'll let you know when uh, this comes out. So thanks a lot. Lovely, thank you. Thanks once again to Richard for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. And if you want to suggest someone who you think we should talk to on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, if you so wish, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. If you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. I'd like to ask you... If you would be so kind as to go leave a rating and review, preferably on iTunes or however your particular podcasting app allows you, it really makes a difference to me. um, And if that's not good enough, it helps others to find the show. So until next time, that was Richard Gooding. I've been Andrew Clues and safe motoring.